I'm humbled to be back before you again this morning, and uh, it was good to make a trip last week, and uh, I appreciate many of you saying that you missed me being here last week. I will tell you that Wednesday night, I was a little bit deflated, though. Brother Brian mentioned in his lesson that uh, Steve and I had pretty voices. I don't know about that. Where I came from, if you told a guy something was pretty, you were, you were a little bit on the insulting side. <laughs> no, I know what Brian meant, and I appreciate his good lessons and uh, what he had to say. For those of you who are visiting with us, we're delighted that you're here with us today. For a number of Sundays, we have been studying from the book of Philippians, a very powerful book. The Apostle Paul was in a Roman jail writing a letter to a congregation of people who was going through a difficult time, suffering like he was. They were facing a number of different challenges, both from within and without. As we come to chapter 4, we're getting near the end of this book. And this morning's lesson I want to introduce by asking a question as we have each week as we have approached the study of this book. Do you want to be happy? Who doesn't? I don't think there's anybody, if you were to ask them, do you want to be happy? Most of us would say, yes, I want to be happy. I'm looking for happiness in my life. But the real way to happiness is much more demanding than many people realize. They're looking for happiness in the wrong places. They are looking for happiness in the wrong way. In fact, I would suggest to you that to be happy, you have to work at it. I want you to go with me to the Old Testament, to Psalm 128, verse 2. And listen as we read the psalmist. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy. And it shall be well with you. When you eat the labor of your hands... You've got to work to try to find happiness. When you do work, the result of it will be happiness. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13, Solomon writes, Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. It's not as if I will find happiness because I just somehow fall into it. I will not be happy just simply because everything around me just lines up perfectly and everything falls my way. Happiness is not the result of good luck. Happiness is the result of doing what we ought to do and knowing what we ought to do and doing it correctly. Let me reassure you that you can be happy even in the midst of difficult situations. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, at the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are you when they revile you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice! And be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
do you mean that if people revile me, people persecute me, people hate me, that I can still be happy and still rejoice? Most certainly. In fact, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, describing the apostles, he said, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. What you find out when you read your Bible is that happiness can be yours even if circumstances around you are not pleasant. You can be happy if you know what to do and you do so properly. Now where that leads us to our study this morning is to verse 4. And listen again as we read this verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Both times the word rejoice is found in this one simple verse. It is in the imperative mood, which means it is not a suggestion. It is a command. Rejoice! Have you ever had somebody come to you when you were dragging your bottom lip and felt sorry for yourself and say, you need to cheer up? Have you ever had a a parent tell you when you were feeling sorry for yourself, it's time for you to get out of your pity party and now try to do something and be happy? I don't know all the conditions that were behind the statement that is found here in Philippians chapter 4. I do know some of them from this book. And I know that Paul is trying to impress upon them, you must be happy. That's what Christians are. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. Well, Paul, I need some instructions. I need to know how to do it. So what he's going to do is take verses 5, 6, and 7, and he's going to talk about happiness involves restraint. We're going to look at that in verse 5. Verse 6, happiness involves reliance upon God. And then number 3, happiness is going to bring about a result that is amazing. Let's take these three points and go through them as we have time this morning. Look at verse 5 again. Let's key on that verse. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Let's take that first part. Let your gentleness. What does he mean by gentleness? Well, if you have the original King James, you'll notice the word moderation is there. Some of you use the American Standard, and you will notice the word Forbearance is the way those translators translated it. If you take the original word and you go to the premier lexicon, Bauer, Danker, Art, and Gingrich, we abbreviate it BDAG, he says it means not insisting on every right of letter of law or custom. Yielding, gentle, kind. Courteous, tolerant. This is something that you and I have to make sure that 
we have a little bit of all these words, gentleness, that is, I'm not responding harshly. The word moderation is, I hold back something. You see the idea of restraint there? Forbearance, that is, I don't give in, I forbear there. Now, I think perhaps the best way to illustrate it is to see it used in Scripture. And in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18, Peter writes, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. I think all of us can imagine a master over a slave who would be harsh and someone would be full, um, punished, beaten when he didn't do anything wrong. And here Peter is saying, you be good to those masters. But he also said, be good to those who are good and gentle. They don't beat their slaves, their servants. They do not mistreat them in any way. That's this word right here. Now as you think about that, he said, let your gentleness be known to all men. How do we do that? How can I let my moderation, how can I let my forbearance, my gentleness be known? Well, if you look in the context, I suggest to you in responding to the evil of others. Somebody mistreats me. How do I respond to that? Can I somehow be careful that I don't give in to it? Well, sure I can. Listen to Matthew 5, 39-42. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you to take away your tunic, give him your cloak also, or let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go with him one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, you do not turn away. In the context, Jesus was responding to people who had this idea, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I am going to insist on my rights. You have mistreated me. You will suffer the consequences of it. And Jesus takes that. Instead of saying just, no, don't mistreat them, he adds on top of that and says, if they would mistreat you, you go beyond that. I'll give you another illustration. The church in Corinth was suffering some turmoil on the inside. This turmoil was beginning to manifest itself in a number of different ways. One of them was that of lawsuits between brethren. And he comes down to verse 7 and says, Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law one against another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Instead of always insisting on my rights, he says what you need to do is to resist the temptation to respond in like kind. In Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, repay to no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Do you see that all men there? Just exactly like it is 
in Philippians chapter 4, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If you're, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think you can really understand Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5. Let your gentleness, let your moderation, let your forbearance be made known to all men. But you can also show restraint in other areas as well. Sometimes we have to show restraint, moderation, if you will, in material things. Do we need material things here on this earth? Most certainly. You've got to have food to eat. You've got to have clothes to wear. You've got to be able to have the funds to plant and to harvest. Sometimes we have this idea, I've got to have more And when you go to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. I suggest to you, if you're studying the context here as well, Yodia and Syntyche needed some restraint as well. I don't know which one of them was at fault. Maybe both of them were at fault. Maybe both of them had evil surmising, evil suspicions of what the other had said or done. The text does not tell us. But I know that they had to be careful in the way they treated one another. In James 1 and verse 19, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, Now listen to this last part. Slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Do you know it's very easy when someone says something inflammatory? I'm going to tell them off that quick. No, James says you be slow to speak. You be slow to wrath because your wrath doesn't work the righteousness of God. Now he gives some justification for this. Because the Lord is at hand. The phrase at hand can mean either in space or time. For instance, when we read in Matthew chapter 3 and Luke chapter 3 about John the Baptist... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's nearby in time. Paul did not anticipate the Lord's return as being imminent. That is, right away. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, I go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, and he says, we don't want you to be soon shaken in mind or troubled as either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. And then he goes on to say that there's got to be a falling away first. There's got to be this man of sin revealed. It's not going to be immediate. 
the Lord at hand can mean and should mean that the Lord is nearby to observe. In Mark chapter 14, verse 42, Jesus said, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He's right near us. He's close by. The Lord is at hand. The Lord knows what you're going through. He knows your trials. He knows your temptations. And He even knows how tough they can be. He's been tempted in every point as we are, yet without sin. The Lord's at hand, folks. So show some resistance. Wouldn't we be happier if we showed a little more restraint knowing that the Lord is near? How many times have you said, I wish I hadn't said that? I can raise my hand a lot of times on that one. We need to show more restraint and we will be happier. Number two, let's look at verse six. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be anxious for nothing. Now the word anxious, anxiety, can cover a full spectrum of meanings. For instance, it's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28. Paul says, That which comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches, based off this same word here for anxiety. There are times when we have deep, natural concern. Here's your child gets sick. Child's running a high fever. Child's becoming listless. Skin becomes clammy. Maybe we need to call the doctor because it appears that our child is seriously sick. That's deep concern. On the other hand, sometimes our concern becomes irrational. And it just becomes just plain old worry about things that are not important. Let me give you a good illustration. If you go to Luke chapter 10, you begin the context in verse 38. Our Lord arrived at the home of Martha and Mary. And as you can imagine, the Lord is a very important person to them, not only a friend, but very important as well. Luke records that Martha was cumbered about with much serving. What that means is very simply... She's busy trying to fix something to eat, get the place presentable. And Mary is sitting there at the feet of Jesus, listening to every word he said. The longer that Mary sat there and the more that Martha prepared, the more frustrated Martha became. And she even went to the point and said, Lord, bid her that she helps me. Notice the Lord's response in verse 41. Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. He goes on to say, one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. Sometimes we get really concerned about things that do not matter. 
Listen to Matthew chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, verse 31, verse 34. Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. All you folks who get so worried about things, do you think God will take care of you? Drop down to verse 31. Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I can't start worrying about everything that will happen tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. Will we go off a fiscal cliff? I have no idea. But I know if we go over that fiscal cliff, God will still be in heaven. Jesus will still be on his throne. And most of us will still have food to eat and clothes to wear. You see, our problem sometimes, we get so irrationally concerned about things that are not eternal in nature. Worry robs people of so much happiness. And so Paul offers an alternative to it. He says, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What he's saying is, folks, learn to ask God for the things that you need. Matthew 7, verse 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And he who knocks, it will be opened to him. Or what man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Folks, most of us, if a child comes and asks his parent sincerely, genuinely, I'm hungry. Genuinely, I'm hungry. You know what any reasonable parent will do? He's going to say that child is fed. If we know as weak and even evil human beings do that, what about God? Do you not believe that he loves us? Do you not believe that he cares for us and can provide? James 4, 2, you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war and you do not have because you do not ask. It's difficult to give up on self-reliance, but that's the only way one can make it, and that's by relying on God. Listen to Luke 18, 27, but he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Now number three, let's look at the results from verse seven. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. What, is he, what do you mean when you say peace? 
I was somewhere the other day and uh, there was a denominational clergyman, person who was uh, a part of their religious group, spoke to one of their other people and he says, the peace of God be upon you. And I thought, what does that mean? I know what peace means. It means the absence of hostility. Like we have peace between nations. With regards to ourselves, it means the fact that we are not against ourselves. You know, sometimes we're our own worst enemy. And so you can have tranquility of mind. How do we get peace with God and thus peace with ourselves? In Romans 5 and verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the truth is, is that once you and I choose to sin, we make ourselves an enemy of God. But because Jesus died on the cross, shed His blood, and I have faith in Him that responds in obedience means that I can have peace with God. We're no longer estranged from one another. We're no longer at odds with one another. Now we have peace. And if I know that I have peace with God, other things really fall into place. It passes the understanding of the world. To me, one of the best comments that one can find on this verse is found in 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Now listen to the last sentence in that verse. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. The truth is the world doesn't get us. They do not understand how Christians can have peace of mind, tranquility of spirit in the face of difficulty. Something bad happens. And a Christian's able to face it with confidence and resolve. A preacher that I followed at the previous congregation, also from my hometown, is was Brother Benny Hester. He passed away, I believe, Friday. May it could have been yesterday. Many of you remember Brother David Hester, who used to be at Manchester. That was his father. My grandfather helped convert Benny Hester's father many, many years ago. When he passed away, I thought it was encouraging to see the confidence expressed by the children and grandchildren with regards to their grandfather. You know why that confidence is there and the world just doesn't get it? Why can people who are Christians have a peace when one of their family members dies? They just don't get it. And the reason why we can have peace is because of what we find in Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. It guards our hearts 
and our minds. The word guards refers to the same kind of thought of a person who would guard like a soldier would guard a facility. Or like a teacher, a tutor, would guard the mind of a child to make sure that child's mind is taught correct things. For instance, Galatians 3.23, Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for faith which would be afterward revealed. The Old Testament law was to guard the minds of the people. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation to be revealed at the last time. I think now I'm beginning to understand what Paul is trying to say. Folks, you can be persecuted. You can go through all these difficulties in life. Some of them internal, some of them external, but you have that confidence in God, that faith, that trust in Him. Come what may, you can have peace. And it guards your hearts. That's the passions. It guards your minds. That's your intellect. Sometimes we talk about a head religion and a heart religion. Some people have a religion of the head. They know what's right, but they don't have any passion in their heart. Some people have a lot of passion in their heart, but they do not have the correct teaching. But this guards both. What a wonderful privilege that is. Some people are seeking joy and happiness in all the wrong places. Solomon pursued that in the book of Ecclesiastes. Oh, look, I'll try this, I'll try that, I'll try all the things this world has to offer. But he didn't find happiness. Some are seeking it in the right place, but in the wrong way. That is, they're trying to find happiness in the Lord's church but they're trying to do it their own way. They're trying to rely on themselves. And folks, what you have to do, you have to really give up and give in and surrender. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Real joy is only something that can be achieved by trusting God and following in His plan. Would you take your songbook now as we prepare to sing this invitation song? If you're not a Christian, by faith in Jesus, repenting of your sins, confessing that faith and being baptized, would you respond this morning? If you are a child of God who needs to be restored to faithfulness, we encourage you, we invite you as we sing the song to Respond so that we may pray with you and for you. In either way you need, would you come as we stand and sing?